Jody Burchell is the data scientist developer advocate at JetBrains, which makes integrated development environments, or IDEs, for many major languages. After observing the rapid growth of the AI coding assistant landscape, the company recently announced integration of an AI assistant into their IDEs. Jody joins the show today to talk about why the company decided to take this step, the design challenges of adding AI tools to software products, and the team's particular interest in auto-generating code documentation. Jody also talks about the different types of language AIs, how AI tools will impact software development, and more. This episode of Software Engineering Daily is hosted by Sean Falconer. Check the show notes for more information on Sean's work and where to find him. Jody, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so happy to be on and thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation. I've been a longtime IntelliJ user. Of course, you know, JetBrains does many, many things, but I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the company through their rather famous IDE at this point. But let's start with you. Who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so I've been at JetBrains for about a year and a half. I'm the developer advocate in data science. But prior to that, I had quite a long career, about seven years as a data scientist, and I spent most of that career working in natural language processing, which is obviously very relevant to today's chat. And then prior to that, I was an academic, so my PhD is in psychology. Oh, wonderful. So you made a couple of transitions, you know, you went from mm-hmm. academics to data science to now developer advocacy. How is that transition been for you, like moving from day to day doing data science work to, I'm sure you're doing some elements of data science work today, but probably a lot of it's also focused on sort of educating people about, you know, how do you do data science with JetBrains suite or, you know, convey essentially new product updates and feedback cycles and so forth. Yeah. It's a question I actually get quite a lot because I think particularly developer advocacy and data science is relatively new. So I actually didn't know what developer advocacy was before I ended up applying for this job. A friend of mine works at JetBrains and she suggested that I apply. The reason that I ended up applying for the job is back when I was an academic, something I was very passionate about was teaching. And this kind of felt like it was an opportunity to return to that a bit. So, you know, obviously there's sort of internal stuff that needs to be done, but I would like to think a huge proportion of the time that I spend on the job is just educating people, not just about our tools, but about data science and making maybe slightly inaccessible topics a bit more friendly. Yeah, I actually think academics to advocacy or developer relations is a great, you know, very natural transition. I also made a similar transition. And I know during my time at Google, they would actually a lot of times try to recruit people that had some sort of, you know, academic experience because there is a lot of, you know, when you're working as a professor or teacher in university, you're spending a lot of time trying to essentially convey really, you know, complex technical concepts to an audience and have them understand it and be able to digest it. And that's a lot of what you're doing when you're working as an advocate as well. It's just a little bit maybe more product and industry focused, but a lot of those skills I think are transferable. Yeah. And it's funny, like this job, I think reminds me more than any other job I've had of my time in academia. Like it's also because like I've got a lot of freedom to do what I like, which I also had in academia. And I'll be honest, like I really liked all of the jobs I've had, but what I like is how long my rope is in this job. So it's nice to have that sort of discretion to make your decisions about what will be valuable. Yeah, I also think that that is a common theme as well that I see with people who are working in developers. You have a little bit more sort of ambiguity and there's a little bit less of a fixed structure where you're running maybe like a two-week sprint on like a software development cycle where you're really, I need to deliver this feature for, you know, this, you know, larger product offering or something like that. There's a little bit more like freedom to kind of choose your own adventure, I think, mm-hmm. in developer relations, which probably speaks to the person who's gone through a PhD or done, you know, academic work where you might be working on a project that's an undefined thing for three years and that nobody really is, you know, understanding except for you. Yeah, exactly. And it's it surprised me how comfortable it felt, actually. Awesome. Well, I think that given your background in academics and NLP, and now you're jumping to the world of, of jet brains and coding environments, like there's this huge intersection that's happening right now between AI, 
coding assistance. And that's where I, you know, I want to spend a bunch of our time today mm -hmm. on is around these AI coding systems. But before we get too deep into that world, I wanted to try to lay some groundwork for LLMs. So first, can you start off by breaking down some of the relationship between you know, AI, machine learning, generative AI, LLMs, and, and GPT? I feel like there's a ton of confusion when I talk to folks, that, especially that are maybe not super well-versed in this world. I, I know in my day job, we spent multiple months trying to tell our sales team that chat GPT is not, not a, the LLM, it's GPT that's the model and stuff like, and people have a hard time sort of dissecting what's actually going on here and what these different things mean. Yeah. And I think part of it too, is with the current hype cycle, a lot of these terms that are established academic terms have become conflated with marketing terms. So yeah, I think this is a really important place to start. So let's start with AI. So AI is a very, very, very broad field. Basically, it's an attempt to create, say, let's artificial systems or machines, whatever you want to call them, that can mimic human cognitive abilities. And this can mean a lot of things. It can incorporate everything from, say, knowledge representation to social intelligence to the one that everyone thinks of, which is artificial general intelligence, when you have a machine that has the exact same capabilities as a human. But the core idea is you're trying to create systems that can do parts of human reasoning. And this doesn't have to be everything that a human can do. It can be part of what we can do, like translation between languages or making decisions independently. So AI is, well, I guess, you know, with the broadness of the field, you could arguably say that it's hundreds of years old, but like formally as a field, it was started in the 1950s. And then we move to machine learning. Machine learning is, I suppose, a subset of artificial intelligence. What happens with machine learning is algorithms are trained on data sets to automatically perform some sort of specific task. So they really tend to be optimized for specific tasks, you know, the thing that they're trained to do. So that might be, I don't know, classifying images or being able to predict stock prices. These are all machine learning models. And these models tend to show a little brittleness when you try to get them to do tasks that are too far outside of what they were trained on. So then that leads to generative AI. Generative AI, I suppose the way that we're talking about it right now is a subset of machine learning. So basically you have these types of machine learning models, which are called deep learning models or neural nets, and they're used to create new content based on patterns that they see in training sets. And I've seen it mentioned that like the first generative algorithm was this computer program from the 1960s called ELISA, which is you know, it was basically designed to mimic Rogerian psychotherapists, like, you know, tell me how you feel. It was, of course, not a neural net. It was just a rule-based program. But this is sort of seen as like the first kind of system that could mimic a human and generate text. And people thought it was acting in a kind of human-like manner. Generative AI is kind of broad. At the moment, it's mostly centered on text and image generation. But, you know, there's also speech generation, there's videos. I'm sure you've all seen deep fakes. You know, even things like music or data can be generated by these generative algorithms. Then we have large language models. <laughs> Shall I keep going or yeah, do, go do you want to jump in? Yeah. So large language models are sort of the latest generation of machine learning algorithms in natural language processing. So not all large language models are actually generative AI. Basically, they are mostly built on a particular type of deep learning model, which is called a transformer model. And these models are very, very efficient at extracting the meaning of the words in context. So when you feed these models, when you train them on huge amounts of text, they get super good at creating internal representations of how language functions. And this means you can use them for a whole range of natural language tasks. You can use them for things like text classification, summarization, and translation. And then that leads finally to the GPTs. So the GPTs are a particular subset of large language models. It stands for generative pre-trained transformers. And the way that they're trained is you basically get the model to predict a missing word in a sentence 
or the next word in a sentence. So a GPT would be trained, say, for example, if you fed in a sequence, something like the cat is on the, based on all of the examples it's seen of sentences before and trying to guess the next word, it would probably predict mat or, you know, something that comes very commonly after that. And interestingly, actually, this is something I really like as a fact about the GPTs. They weren't initially generated or created as text generation algorithms. They're actually created as a way to scale up the amount of data that we had for training these models. Because normally with machine learning models, you have to do some sort of pre-processing to get the data into a form you need. But if you're just feeding in sentences and breaking them into pieces, you can really scale up the amount of training data that you have. But the side effect, of course, is that we now have these really amazing models that have these really rich internal representations of language and are also very good at generating text because that was what they were trained to do. So that's kind of the landscape. It's a little complicated, but I hope that gives everyone a bit of a perspective of how we got to the point we're at the moment. No, I think that's wonderful. And I think it's a good reminder to like, even going back to like what you started out with talking about the foundations of some of the AI research really comes back to the early 1950s and some of the pioneering work by Alan Turing around, mm-hmm. you know, the imitation game, which eventually became like the Turing test. And he was really the first person to put forward this idea of like, could we build a machine essentially that mimics human behavior? And, you know, unfortunately he wasn't around, you know, he lost his life early. So he wasn't able to continue, but a lot of people picked it up from there. And, you know, and that, he was also the foundation of essentially the Turing machine, which is mm-hmm. what we're, you know, communicating on today. So that's, so it's, it's really a long history there. In terms of some of the early work, or not necessarily early work, but sort of the things that we're used to doing with in machine learning around these like probabilistic models or classification, you know, people have been using them for fraud detection, spam detection for, mm-hmm. for years, really since like the dawn of the internet. I remember building naive Bayes classifiers for, <laughs> for spam detection back in the early 2000s and so forth. But has there been essentially a particular innovation or something that happened that allowed us to kind of make this like leap forward in terms of what we're able to do in more of a generative AI sense. Like, I think that what we see from LLMs and what seems so impressive is that, you know, we can really ask something as if you would ask another person and you get a response as if it was, you know, written by another person versus I think over the last 20 years of using things like Google search, we've like programmed ourselves and how to essentially interact with like a keyword based search, which mm-hmm. is performing AI to some extent behind the scenes, but it's not how you would ask somebody about like the restaurants in Nashville. Like you wouldn't type Nashville restaurants or you know, walk mm-hmm. up to you and be like Nashville restaurants. You'd be like, what is this rude person talking about? But that's how you would ask essentially Google search to find results like that. Yeah. So there are actually three pillars of how we got to where we are at the moment. So the first is we needed processes that are really good at doing the sort of computations that you need to do when you're training neural nets. It's essentially matrix multiplication. The details don't really matter. But CUDA was developed, I think, in around 2006. And this was a way of being able to turn GPUs into these matrix multiplication machines that we needed to create these big models. And then there was data. So I've already talked about you know, the fact that the GPTs just use sentences. Where they ended up coming from was a data set called Common Crawl. It's basically a dump of petabytes of web data. And Common Crawl is, well, we don't know exactly what ChatGPT and GPT-4 were trained on, but the earlier GPTs were trained on Common Crawl. And then the third was these transformer models I was talking about. So With natural language processing, at least, one of the biggest challenges that we had was learning how to represent words in a context. This is really, really challenging. And there were a lot of sort of earlier attempts at doing this. The simplest models just don't do it. They're called bag of words models. But obviously, in order to understand even things like disambiguations, like what does run (laughs) mean in different contexts? What does bank mean? up to things like sarcasm or jokes, you really need to understand this context. So we had an earlier type of neural net called an LSTM, long short-term memory models. And basically they were the first ones to try and understand words in their sequences, but they had some technical limitations. And so they were really limited in how big we could make them and how many words we could sort of get them to process in a sequence. 
So the kind of successor of those was the transformer models. And they've really allowed us to scale up because they're not bound to sequential processing. They're really good at processing longer sequences. They can take in huge amounts of data. They can grow really big. And this is what's allowed us to end up with these all-purpose natural language machines because you can just train them on so much data that they learn so much about the world they've seen through that text that they become almost like, well, I suppose the phrase is stochastic parrots. But yeah, they become really good at imitating us and seeming almost human-like. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that had to happen before that was even possible was we needed to generate enough digital data Mm-hmm. to even have the corpus to train these models on. Like 15 years ago, we probably didn't have enough stuff online to even come close to where this is now. Yeah, that's actually a really great point. And I suppose it's something that I often forget about. Like I grew up in not quite the age of the internet. Like I still used dial-up <laughs> when I was in high school. Me too. But yes, yes. It's kind of a come for granted how much data we have now. Like my previous job, I worked in programmatic advertising. It was not natural language processing, but we were basically selling auctions for advertisements on applications and the amount of traffic, we had like 170 billion transactions a day when I was working there. And that's just one little company (laughs) working in this space. So the amount of data that companies like Google or Microsoft or you know, the big ones have, it's crazy. And yeah, the amount of text data is is just readily available. It's all there for the taking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you've touched on this a little bit around like what the original GPT models were trained on, but can you give a little bit of background on the history of the GPT models? What are the major differences between the different versions? I think most people, it sort of became part of the zeitgeist with ChatGPT and and Mm. GPT-3.5. And it's kind of where I think a lot of people's head naturally go to OpenAI and GPT when we think about generative AI and LLMs. Of course, there's a lot going on in the space, but I think that is probably the main one to maybe talk about before we kind of jump into some other stuff. Yeah. So as I said earlier, the GPTs are not the only large language models. So large language models were, well, I should say transformer-based large language models were initially actually designed for machine translation. So you had this sort of input unit called an encoder, which is designed to learn about the source text. And then you have the decoder, which is designed to learn about the target text and then generate the translations. And sort of taking each of these units on their own, the encoder and the decoder, spawned two different branches of large language models. So those of you who have any interest in large language models might have heard of a model called BERT. It's a foundational model, which is basically encoder-based. So it's sort of designed to do a number of, I won't get too much into BERT, but it's designed to do a number of tasks, which make it really good at, again, general natural language tasks. But the other path that was sort of taken was the decoder path, and this was the GPT tasks. So the original GPT was really just sort of stacking a bunch of these decoder units and feeding in a bunch of this sort of web data. And this was first developed by OpenAI in 2018. (laughs) So they're actually relatively old, I guess, if you're thinking sort of compared to the recent zeitgeist. GPT-2 was 2019, so it was about 13 times bigger. And I was around for GPT-2. I was working with a bunch of computational linguists when that model came out. And we used to actually send each other the completion of prompts <laughs> from GPT-2. And they were, both of the models, they were good at imitating grammar, but they tended to produce just word salad. Like they were mm-hmm. pretty, they did not sound realistic, let's say. The real breakthrough was GPT-3. GPT-3 was 117 times bigger than GPT-2. And this was the point where we started having models producing convincing text. But the big problem was, is the models learned a lot about the world. And sometimes the things that it learned was not very nice. So this is where the models really started showing problems with bias, toxicity. And it also where you started seeing this hallucination problem where the models really tended to lie. So this actually leads us to ChatGPT. It was initially a project called Instruct GPT. And the idea was they were like, okay, can we design a secondary system that will sort of steer the model into being more truthful, less biased, less toxic? So the first step was 
they took a GPT model, GPT 3.5, and what they did was they got a whole bunch of people, gave them prompts, and got those people to write like exemplar answers. And these answers were designed to be truthful and non-toxic, non-biased. And then what they did was a process called fine-tuning. So fine-tuning is where you take a general purpose model like a GPT and you train it a little bit further on a smaller data set, which is more targeted. So in the case of the GPT 3.5 model, it was fine-tuned to mimic these exemplar answers more to produce better quality answers. But then they added in one final component, and that's a reinforcement learning component. So essentially what they then did is they took this fine-tuned model They got a bunch of prompts. They fed those prompts through the model four times. Then they got another set of human raters to rate how good each of those answers were. Again, based on how truthful and non-toxic they are. They trained another model, a reward model, using those answers. And then that produced a model which could predict how good an answer was based on that score, one to seven you know, based on what the raters had given similar answers in the past. And then this whole system is glued together. So what you have is you enter in some sort of prompt into ChatGPT. It will output an answer from that fine-tuned GPT 3.5 model. That answer will be fed into that reward model. It'll spit out a score. And then that score will be used to kind of tweak that fine-tuned model So that kind of the idea is that over time, you're getting this model that moves more and more towards a kind of truthful, non-toxic, high quality answers. So this is ChatGPT. We think that GPT-4 works the same way. It's just a bigger GPT model under the hood. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, just breaking down some of the history there, some of the things that happened that got us to the place where we are now. One is just bigger model, more data processed, sort of better quality data. I'm sure there, there's some stuff that they're doing around, you know, improving the quality of the data. And then also factoring in a combination of other types of models to help fine tune and refine what's actually there, plus a human in the loop process yeah. to make sure that we're sort of steering away from things that are toxic or unethical. And there's actually a lot of interesting work, not to derail things too much, around using fine-tuning now, this is coming out of research, to delete parts of the model too, because one of the challenges with all these models is they're designed to learn, not unlearn. So how do you unlearn from the model? How do I you know, make a model forget what an apple is or something like that? Or more, maybe more relevant would be forget my social security number because I accidentally made it part of the training corpus. Yes. Yeah. The selective amnesia or selective forgetting. I'm really fascinated by this. And the reason it's so important is because training these models is so expensive. Also from an environmental perspective, using GPUs for that long has its cost. So rather than needing to trash everything just because something was included in this enormous data that you just didn't spot... It's actually a really, I think, sensitive approach to being able to refine the models. Yeah. So I want to start to transition from some of this pure you know, AI stuff that we're talking about, which is super fascinating. I think <laughs> yeah. you did a great job of breaking a lot of that stuff down, to talk a little bit about the rise of AI assistance. So there's, of course, GitHub's Copilot. Salesforce mm-hmm. is doing its own work in the space around like Einstein. There's even people using ChatGPT as an assistant. Mm-hmm. From your perspective, like how have these tools, I guess, like what impact are they having to software developer productivity and to the role of being a software engineer? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And to be honest, even before, spoiler alert, JetBrains started developing their own AI assistant, it was a question I had a lot with people because when the hype around these models was at its peak, I think it really kicked off when Copilot came out. And then when ChatGPT came out, it really took off. People are really scared about losing their jobs. They're afraid that these models will replace them. And something I want to say is I truly believe we are nowhere near the point where these models will replace developers. I believe it's just another evolution in productivity tooling. And it requires a partnership between the developer and the tooling to get the best out of the tooling, but also the best out of the developer. Well, not necessarily, you know, you don't need to use it as a developer, but this tooling by itself is not going to replace developers. 
So the reason I believe this is the role of a developer is not to code. The role of a developer is to solve problems. And solving problems in a business context is really complicated. It requires not just dealing with the messiness of human requirements and things like that, but it requires architecture decisions that are not straightforward. It requires communication through code, which is potentially kind of team specific. So just in terms of where I think it fits, this is sort of my preamble, (laughs) but where I think these tools can be helpful from talking to people, from reading discussions, giving feedback on our tooling and on others, what it seems to be the kind of pillars of where these tools can be useful is sort of speeding up boilerplate or common tasks. Maybe you need to, I don't know, write an API. You can get it to do the skeleton and then you can go through and refine the code. Other people have told me that they really like using these tools to help with learning and debugging, sort of like an idea of being like an interactive tutor or a rubber duck. And then helping with things like maybe refactoring suggestions, particularly if maybe you're kind of new to a framework or or new to a language it can be helpful with helping smooth that transition that you don't have experience with yet. Also, I feel like that the concern over potentially like losing your job because of some sort of technology innovation isn't Mm -hmm. something that's solely restricted to AI. I feel like with any kind of jump, I mean, there was a time when someone in the early parts of my career, you, this wasn't the only job they did, but you paid somebody to like, you know, basically copy and paste files from your staging server over to your live <laughs> production servers and create backups of those things. And then eventually we developed like real systems for, you know, actually automating that entire pipeline. And those people still had jobs. They just, you know, transitioned their roles to some extent. But like there's always been fear as we've introduced automation, especially in engineering, that it might, you know, remove someone's role. Now, this feels like a step function in terms of what's been there before. And I also think that there's for whatever reason, like a little bit more fear around things like robotics and AI, Mm. things that feel like uniquely human things. I guess, what are your thoughts on that in terms of just managing the psychology around this? Yeah, I think firstly, I don't know, looking at the findings of where these models tend to be useful. So there's not a whole lot of research yet about the interactivity between developers and these tools. But the literature that I'm seeing is really coming out with the idea that, well, yeah, maybe it can replace developers in terms of some basic coding tasks, but it also tends to get things wrong a lot. So that means that it's definitely not at a point where you can reliably like automate this, create a, you know, an LLM based pipeline, which will be an automatic developer. I'm not really seeing... I guess, any sort of convincing remedies for this hallucination problem. So that alone, I think, is a deal breaker. But again, it's sort of the way that I see like these tools fitting in is it sort of seems that where they really seem to benefit people is they help speed up or reduce that gap between juniors and seniors. So you'll have some sort of coding task. And it really helps developers on board a little bit faster with the basics of using a language. I've seen it also actually with non-coding tasks, you know, it can help people on board faster with writing reports or things like that. But it's really just the fundamental parts of the job. You're not going to be able to replace things like, I don't know, how to create a maintainable application. So what I sort of see is, The large language models can help juniors learn this sort of basic stuff, the basics of using the language by themselves. And then the seniors can better spend their time tutoring them in the more complicated, the art part of the jobs. And I actually think it's probably going to be a net benefit for everyone that there's going to be less time spent doing (laughs) the boring crap and more time spent doing the creative, interesting building type of the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that even in my own you know, personal life or like working in, through a career, like if I'm in full like sort of do mode all the time where I'm just like, you know, cranking through tasks, it doesn't leave a lot of cycle time for sort of thinking like a higher level strategy perspective or and 
in theory, if you can use coding assistance to kind of relieve you of some of those like just rote tasks, then mm -hmm. you have more free cycles to be thinking about things like that, you know, deeper level problems, strategy, how do we, you know, overall make a better system. I have seen people express concerns about an over-reliance on AI as well, where it could potentially lead to like a loss of, of core coding skills. And I think in the world of programming, and from my own experience, there's kind of a lot of times like two camps with how to like learn to code. There's one camp that's like, hey, you need to suffer through like the school <laughs> of hard knocks of like memory allocation issues and bit twiddling and really get to these low level compiler errors in order to truly understand what's going on. And mm -hmm. then there's other people who are like, hey, like you could skip all that stuff. Like let's have a gentler entrance into this and start with something that doesn't require compilation like JavaScript or Python. It's maybe a little bit more like digestible in terms of like reading, lower the barrier to entry, get people excited about it. And then, you know, maybe they can find their own way to, you know, bit totaling and dealing with memory allocation errors. But if we abstract that away even further, where we don't even need to do any of those steps, or we become, you know, over the line where we kind of forget how to do some of these things. Do you see concern in terms of those issues? Yeah. And I think it's a very parallel argument to Stack Overflow. So copying and pasting from Stack Overflow, like we've all done it, it's fine. But in the end, you are responsible for the code. So Stack Overflow can't do your job for you. And in the same way, large language models can't do your job for you. So you cannot get out of being responsible for the things that you put into production. Therefore, you cannot get out of having to at least understand what this function is doing, having to understand the side effects. I do also think that there are some, maybe some traps in these models. So we've already talked about the hallucination problem. There are a couple of other problems. So our own evaluation of our own AI assistant, we found you know, the assistant will come up with good code most of the time, but it can throw up issues like outdated frameworks or libraries or outdated usage of APIs or just general poor code. And these are side effects of the fact that these models have a training base or a training data set, which is locked at a particular period of time. You know, it went until 2021 and maybe your framework came out after that. So, I actually kind of think this is like, it really speaks to why these need to be a collaborative endeavor. You have yourself as a sanity check, but you also have team members who are going to be doing PRs on your code. You have your compiler or your interpreter that's going to be doing that check, but you always need your critical thinking. You need to be going, okay, it's produced this, but I'm pretty sure we're up to, you know, framework 12 or whatever, you know, whatever your version is, maybe I should just go back to the documentation and check that because there could also be vulnerabilities, things like that. So it's a collaboration in the same way that you wouldn't just take something from Stack Overflow uncritically and just put that in your code base. Yeah. Ideally, you're not just copying and pasting from Stack Overflow <laughs> and then <laughs> committing immediately and pushing it to production. You know, what you were saying around, you know, people have a responsibility at the end of the day of what they're, you know, maybe copy and pasting or, or pulling from another source. I mean, I guess it's, it's the same as, you know, if, if you're using a GPS and your GPS, you know, was steering you into a river because it made a mistake, but like you're mm -hmm. still responsible for you yeah, know, yeah. using your human intelligence to realize, okay, there's no road here and I should probably shouldn't drive into this water. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And like I said, you're not getting paid to code. So the LLM can't replace you. You're getting paid to solve a problem. And you also maybe just shouldn't accept the first code that the LLM outputs. You know, maybe you have a senior or maybe you've seen it done a different way, which you think is more maintainable. In that case, refactor it. Like it's fine. It's just a starting point to maybe help you get over a little bit of a bump and not have that blank slate kind of problem where mm -hmm. a blank page problem. I would think too, like context is a big part of it too. Like if you're dealing with a, you're working on a big code base, maybe you even within your own company have your own, you know, conventions and you're going to have your own knowledge that's probably not part of the model that you need to use to inform or refine what you're actually generating. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what JetBrains is doing in the space. So can you 
talk a little bit about what you know JetBrains AI assistant. How is it perhaps differ from the other AI coding assistants that are on the market? Yeah. So what I kind of want to talk about is why we decided to do an AI assistant. So we've been doing developer productivity tools for 20 years <laughs> and we kind of sat back and watched what was happening in this space and sort of carefully thought about whether it would be a net benefit to the tooling. And after sort of seeing some of the evidence coming out, some of the papers coming out, trying it for ourselves, we decided that, yeah, we did feel that this could be an increase to developer productivity. So we really wanted to make it useful though, not something that takes developers out of their workflow. And sort of weave it in as much as we can to the workflow as much as possible. So something that's quite advantageous for us, I guess, is because we basically control the entire environment. What this means is, you know, obviously when we're indexing the projects, we have access to the full context. We have access to the structure of the project file. We have access to all the libraries you're using. We obviously know what programming language you're using. We also record some behavior, although I should say this is opt-out. If you don't want to do this, you can opt-out. And then obviously we know which file you're using. So this means we can actually collect all of this information and pass it as part of the context to the large language models that we're using as part of our AI assistant. And we'll kind of come back to that later, I think, about you know when we get into details about specifically how we're doing things. But this is we realized quite unique opportunity that we have, which helps us really target the actions and get the best and most relevant output. And then the other thing is we sort of wanted to be flexible about the models we're using because things are moving very fast. And I could not have really predicted we would be where we are a year ago. So we also have a variety of models that we're using from what we're calling our AI service different actions are connected to different models. And we're kind of constantly doing research to try and, you know, get the best out of the models we're using, check if we could use a different model that might do things better. And yeah, it's, it's kind of a definitely an ongoing project at this stage, but I think kind of an interesting direction for us to go to and something we really see as quite promising. Mm -hmm. So one of the things you mentioned at the beginning there was around trying to make this sure that this feels like not just something bolted on that it feels like mm -hmm. natural. So what are the, some of the things that you did, like what are the design decisions, I guess, that you made to incorporate it in a way that feels natural to a engineer's workflow? Yeah. And this was something we wanted to be super careful about because the hype is real. <laughs> we didn't want users to feel, I don't know, like we were selling out and just jumping on a bandwagon. So we've done our research. What we've found is that people find large language models most helpful when they can take that routine or boilerplate tasks and make them be easier or faster. I talked about that a little bit earlier. So, you know, like I talked about prototyping or refactoring, something else that we found people really find a bit of a barrier when they're doing development and they don't like doing that much is doing things like creating documentation or communicating clearly with their code. It can feel a little bit like an afterthought. So we've tried to integrate that as part of the AI assistant workflow. So we've got context actions for writing documentation with some of the languages or doing variable name suggestions or just like commit message suggestions. And the way that we've integrated it is we've really tried to make it just another context action. So when you're using the tool, you have your favorite context actions. This is really just another one. And we do have an AI chat to the side, but we've tried as much as possible to get things to be in line and as part of the normal workflow. Yeah, I feel like where IDs are can be really successful and really powerful is when it's basically the hands never really need to leave the keyboard. Mm -hmm. it, like because that's where you're living when you're coding. If you have to go and click around to like an external tool or something like that, it just breaks the whole workflow. And when you you can really it almost looks like like someone, I don't know, playing a musical instrument if you have somebody who's really, really tuned with an IDE and they can navigate the whole thing and like speed through it. So mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. If you can kind of make it part of that workflow and someone gets used to it, they can really like increase their productivity from like, you know, 10x. 
Yes, absolutely. And it was actually really interesting. So we've released this as a limited preview and some of the feedback we've been getting so far is, oh, <laughs> like I used to go and use ChatGPT and then copy and paste from the other browser. So even just having the actions inside the IDE is obviously saving you a lot of time. But on top of that, we've really tried to integrate it as much as we can within the tooling that people are already using. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned the like being able to write documentation directly. I think that's a really exciting thing. That's actually one of the the things I've I've talked about since like this whole explosion is like, hey, if you could take documentation off people's plate, then people would love you for it because mm -hmm. it's really important, but people hate kind of doing it and it can be kind of painful to get people to do it. But how do you go beyond just like really basic documentation where, you know, it's just kind of re-explaining what's already there in code? Yeah. So trying it out. So I've mostly tried it in Python because this is the language I program in because obviously I'm a data scientist. What I found is, firstly, I'll just give you my impressions of how it sort of comes out, and then I'll explain a bit of how we do it under the hood. So basically, what I found is the doc strings tend to be really quite rich. So they're very much in the format you would expect a Python doc string to be. You're getting, you know, your definitions of your variables and your outputs you're getting sometimes explanations of how to use it and they're accurate. So it's actually like super rich. And I was really surprised because it's better than the doc strings I normally write myself. So that was really cool. So in terms of how it works is like I told you, a whole bunch of information is collected as part of building the prompt. And so you'll have information obviously about the function that you want to uh, write the documentation for but you're going to have information about the entire file. You're going to have every single file that is relevant to that function. You're going to have the libraries that are installed. You're going to have, you know, the, the project structure. You're going to have all this information that's included. And then what happens is within the IDE, we have a bunch of, you know, traditional machine learning models. And they're used to actually classify which parts of the context is most relevant to that function that you want to write documentation for. And then what we do is we use all of that to create relevant information for the prompt. And then we basically add to that instructions to create documentation in the style of this relevant programming language for this specific function with these specific parameters. We then call on our JetBrains AI service. We have a security and anti-fraud check just to, you know, make sure that there's no malicious code being passed. And then at the moment we're using third-party models. So we call the API of this model, pass in our prompt, retrieve the output, and then pass that in, in line into the script. And you can imagine, I'm really impressed actually at the op side of things. This is all kind of happening in a number of seconds. And so I kind of hadn't realized until recently how much was happening under the hood with the prompt building. But yeah, it's this whole process to even get the prompt. You have models determining the most appropriate context. So it's, it's mm -hmm. really fascinating. Well, how do you benchmark some of this stuff? Like you mentioned that, you know, you're trying to be model agnostic because so many things are moving in the space mm -hmm. where you want to be able to, you know, potentially plug and play a different model if a different, if a better model comes along, but how do you tell that you're moving in the right direction with something that is, you know, as broad as essentially like, even like from an experimentation standpoint of being able to recreate the same experiment is difficult because when you give a prompt, you're not necessarily going to get exactly the same response. So how do you know that what you're doing is actually better than what you did in the past? Yeah, this is a really great question. It's something that we've been working on internally for a while, even with the ML for code completion like work that we've been doing for years. So actually what a lot of people don't realize is, you know, when say you have your context actions and, or your suggestions for particular methods, you have potentially different rankings depending on the context of the, the file that you're in. That's all powered by machine learning, but it's more kind of traditional machine learning. So it's something we've been thinking about for a while because obviously they're all non-deterministic models. We haven't done, I would say, super extensive research in terms of, I would say, quality benchmarking in that area yet. Like I would say like the perceived quality, it's mostly been survey based, based on the people who are participating in our limited preview. 
What we have found from them, we got about a thousand responses and the overall perception of the code quality was really good. About 73% of the participants were rating it at least a four out of five or a five out of five. And that was consistent across languages. So at least from that perspective, that's pretty solid. At the moment, we're really kind of more focused on trying to refine the outputs based on feedback that we're getting from the beta. So for example, people were commenting that our generated commit messages were too long. We're trying to, you know, get them shorter and test specific hypotheses. Can we do this with this prompt? But we obviously want to move more into benchmarking, you know, other sort of qualities down the track as this becomes more of an established tool. Yeah, I would think that like one type of metric that you'd want that's particular to the space is like developer productivity. Yes. Does like basically what is the baseline model? And then if we introduce this new thing, does it move developer productivity in the right direction? Yeah. And I've been looking around at other studies in this space. Obviously, GitHub been, have been doing a bunch of their own. One that I saw that they released on Archive found that people could complete a task about 55% faster using Copilot versus not. And then there was this fantastic little study. It really made me laugh. So do you remember that ChatGPT was suddenly banned in Italy? Oh, yes. I know yeah. about it. <laughs> so they did a research and they found that the number of software releases went down 50% in the two days following this ban, but then it increased. But correspondingly, the use of censorship bypassing tools also increased. So obviously they couldn't directly connect everything, but we down the track really want to have a look at this sort of stuff as well, because we believe in it. We believe that it's something that will help developers. And, you know, obviously if it's not, it's not something that we want to invest in, but, you know, I'm quite sure we'll be able to replicate those sort of results. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's strong enough signals that you're seeing in market right now. I mean, the fact that someone's like willing to go to chat GPT, put in a prompt, copy and paste it and bring it back over to their IDs, like yeah, shows yeah. that there's some like, you know, value there because that's just adding, you know, a bunch of friction to the whole process versus just spending time on keyboard and, and generating it yourself. Are there specific like industries or use cases where you think that AI coding assistants are particularly impactful or maybe even are not the right fit for those particular verticals or use cases? Yeah. So obviously a big concern right now is privacy. And what we've found is, well, I think everyone's found this, large language model ops is hard. It's really hard. And a lot of the value that OpenAI and other large providers is giving is they have, you know, best in class models, but a lot of those exist as open source models now, but they have really managed to solve this problem of efficient inference where you can pass in a prompt and in a matter of milliseconds, you get back an output. And these models are so huge and it's just so impressive that they can do that. But it does sort of mean that pretty much everyone, I don't really think I've seen anyone who's not, is bound to these large third-party providers, or maybe they're doing their own in-house stuff. And so if you have strong concerns about privacy, and I would say particularly in fields like health or medical or financial, anywhere where there is very sensitive data, you need to be careful about the use of this. And we're, you know, looking for our release to do on-premises models. It'll sort of be an evolving thing as, you know, models in this space evolve. But for now, obviously we all need to exercise some caution about what's passed. And if there are really sensitive pieces of information you're working with, you need to be careful about this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this goes back to what we were saying earlier around like these models are designed to learn, not unlearn. Mm -hmm. And in my day job, this is sort of, you know, a space that I work in heavily, like regulated industry, especially healthcare. And we deal with a lot of people in the LOM space trying to innovate here. How do I do this with, you know, doctor's notes and other super sensitive data? Yeah. And it really comes down to there aren't essentially efficient ways of deleting information from models today that's cost effective. So you have to put a lot of time and thought into how do I build these training pipelines in such a way that I'm not accidentally sharing information? And how do I control essentially who sees what, when, where, and what format and so forth? There's some really hard problems to navigate and solve still. Yeah. And it's something we're really cognizant of. 
we have an agreement with our providers at the moment that they're not going to use our data for training. So anything that's passed won't be used for that. But obviously for a lot of companies, they do want to err on the side of caution. And obviously having come from a health and medical background, I totally applaud that. I think it's better to be safe. And what I'm hoping is in the next six months or so, we can see ways where open source models can be deployed and have efficient inference. I think that would be the ideal solution for everyone. Mm -hmm. Well, as we start to wrap up, Jody, is there anything else you'd like to share? Yeah. So what I would advise is if you're interested in this project, keep an eye on our blog. We're constantly posting updates and we're just working on refining the features that we currently have. We're looking to implement highly requested features, but we're just sort of really trying to do a good job with a small number of features and yeah, just sort of have a look out. We're hoping to release this in the coming months. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being here. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think we did, we covered a lot uh, going (laughs) back to really giving sort of setting the stage for the space and what's happening in it. And then, you know, moving into the AI coding assistant world. And I think that you're, you know, in my opinion, sort of taking the right approach to this where it's kind of, you know, let's see how we can innovate in this space or leverage these models, but do it in a a way that's sort of natural to developers, not gimmicky, like let's not force this on them. Let's make it part of their workflow so that Mm -hmm. we're constantly enhancing the productivity, which feels like the place that JetBrains has kind of, you know, founded their company around for the last 20 years have been really working in the developer productivity space. I really hope that when people try it out, they can see that intent because it's how I feel about it as well, that it's Yeah, like the create documentation thing. I also went crazy with this feature. It's so cool. So yeah, hopefully hopefully you'll be able to see that potential as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And cheers. Yeah, thank you so much.